And let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And tonight, um, we want to uh, follow behind closely these articles that were forged uh, with a hammer, the hammer of truth, O oh God, in, in uh, times of reformation and times of revival. We want to follow closely behind them and be led by them to your word and to be instructed in all righteousness and to know ourselves and to know you. And so, Father, we confess our dependence upon your Holy Spirit, who is the illuminator and the sanctifier of the faithful and the instructor of all truth. And so we pray that we be led into all truth for your name's sake tonight, that all of our hearts, meditations, Lord, everything that we think tonight would be honoring in your sight. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Article 12 tonight, I had intended to go through 13 and 14. <clears throat> Article 13 is about um, works done before Christ. Article 14 is about the supererogatory works that we talked about. And I realize that there's going to be uh, a significant amount of um, exp explanation around those two points that I want to take some time with. Especially, I want uh, next week, next week, two weeks from now, to think about Cornelius <laughs> and, uh, and how we're to understand prevenient grace and works. Because you remember Cornelius, the name I couldn't <laughs> recall last night. Uh, Cornelius had been a man of prayer and a man of alms, and it says in the scripture that those alms had risen up as a as a had risen up as a memorial to God. Uh, well, Article 13 says that none of the works that we do before Christ in any way are pleasing to God, and so I want us to be, think very carefully about about that passage in particular. And then the works of supererogation just re it requires us to go through somewhat of a labyrinth of uh, Roman teaching um, with respect to how the uh, supposed extra virtues of the saints can be applied to us. And I think I think that uh, this is not exclusively a Roman doctrine, but in some way in the Protestant Church even we begin to rely on the experience of other people. Uh, and so there's a, I think there's something helpful that we can think about together. So let's leave those two and think today, tonight about Article 12 of Good Works. And we'll read it together now. Albeit good works, which are the fruits of faith and follow after justification, cannot put away our sins and endure the severity of God's judgment. Yet are they pleasing and acceptable to God in Christ? and do spring out necessarily of a true and lively faith, insomuch that by them a lively faith may be as evidently known as a tree discerned by the fruit. And so what I want to do tonight is look at several of those phrases tonight and simply look at some scripture together and uh, understand what this article is talking about. Now, the teaching of Trent, you'll notice, by the way, that, <laughs> that the... Uh, uh, the framers of this article had a lively apprehension of the severity of God's judgment. They trembled uh, with respect to that, and uh, we have good reason to also. But let's look at the, the response here. They're responding to the teaching of Trent, 
the the quote-unquote ecumenical council of Trent. If anyone says that good works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, not a cause of the increase of justification, let him or her be anathema. And then faith, cooperating with good works, increases the justice which believers have received through the grace of Christ, and they are still further justified by their good works. So in the Roman mind, in in Roman teaching, and this hasn't changed, justification isn't in toto. It never happens in totality. It always happens in parts. You're never fully justified at any one moment in this life. And that leaves a great degree of uncertainty. And part of the Protestant heritage that that we need to to treasure and and think more and more about is the the certainty with which we have in Christ. There's a degree of certainty and assurance of faith. And that's a that's you, you can't spend a lot of time reading the Protestant reformers without coming across the idea of the assurance of faith. You are assured in Christ. You know that you're his. And we're going to Look at some of those um, those verses tonight. So just to, to recognize that as the context here, the backdrop, the teaching of Rome, you're never fully justified. It's always in parts and in measures, and it's never wholly by God. It's God and. It's Christ and. It's the cross and. Um, and uh, that, only, that only makes for... If it were just God... And he does it to us in bits and pieces. Well, then there might be a bit more certainty. Because at the last, we can say, well, I may not be wholly justified today, but surely God is justifying me more and more, right? If that were the case, well, then maybe we might have some degree of certainty. But that's not just the case. Not only is it, not, is it, is it incremental, but it's incremental on behalf because of what we do. And so Luther was haunted haunted by the notion, well, how do I know I'm doing enough? How do I know I'm giving everything that I can do, all that is in me? How do I know, right? So it, does Rome have a, uh, do they think about justification and sanctification as the same thing? No, no, and that's important. Um, and we're going to talk about that because, um, well, What's important for for us as we approach that question is that for us, justification and sanctification are indeed indivisible. They're indivisible. We tend to think of them as 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 divisible, uh, that is, they're they're separate things, but they're indivisible because they come to us from the same source. Christ is our justification. First Corinthians one thirty, right? That. Uh, you guys, but he's made unto us these things, justification and sanctification. And Christ is never divided because Christ can't be divided. The benefits can't be divided. Um, so um, because we believe that justification is given to us wholly through Christ and sanctification is given to us wholly through Christ, um, that's the Protestant doctrine, the, the Roman doctrine is that justification is given um, separately from God 
and from man, from his works and his striving. And that sanctification um, is given by our... Now, I, I, I need to be careful. I need to be careful on the Roman doctrine of sanctification, lest I speak amiss. I, I, I think in the same sense it's bifurcated, that its sanctification is given through the grace of God and is given through our striving uh, in that sense. Um, we believe as Protestants that all of our striving, at least we believe as Reformed Protestants, that all of our striving is the fruit of God's grace in us. At the end of the day, I work out that which God works in. Um, and we, 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 we can never claim the benefit of sanctification ultimately as a fruit of ourselves or even as a fruit of faith. It's always Christ. It's just Christ. It comes all from him. And so there's no boasting whatsoever, even in our own attainments. So we get up one morning at five in the morning. We feel really good about ourselves. We have this glorious time of prayer. We pat ourselves on the back and say, what a, what a good man I am. Instead of saying it just that morning where I did particularly pious devotion to God was an outflow of Christ's grace in me rather than me kind of. So I think, I think that's the key here that in, in Roman teaching, it's always, it's always uh, bifurcated between, between what God gives and what we give. Protestant teaching sees that just grace, all from grace. And even when we understand human responsibility, we, we understand that that human action is, is on top of sheer naked grace of God. Um, and we accept, the, we accept the paradox of that. We don't understand it, but we accept it as paradoxical. That is freely responsible. We're responsible to act. And yet the action is undergirded and upheld by God's grace. Um, and we don't seek to try and disentangle those two things through our cleverness. Okay, uh, page two. Just further fleshing out, Robert Bellarmine. Robert Bellarmine was a Jesuit uh, theologian in the times of the Reformation. He says, the Catholic Church... By the, by the way, Robert Bellarmine was one of the, the great um, uh, interlocutors with the Puritans, English Puritans, constantly writing against uh, Bellarmine. And not uh, necessarily as a great enemy of the, of the faith, because they'll at times quote Bellarmine approvingly. Bellarmine says some wonderful things, but he says some very wrong things, and this is one of them. The Catholic Church teaches that our chief hope and confidence must be placed in God, yet some also in our merits. So there you have the, the sense of division. Um, okay, what are the works in the, in the Roman Catholic mind that, we, that, that um, are being taught? One, their good works are twofold. Good works are those morally positive works, and good works are those obligatory satisfactions. So morally positive good works are when I'm out tomorrow and I see someone crossing the street and the elderly person, she drops her groceries in the middle of the street and I'm, I'm just compelled to go and help. I pick up the groceries and I, I help her across the street. That's a morally positive good work, just um, by its own nature. There are other works where, which aren't as evidently 
morally positive, but are works that we do simply as obligatory satisfactions to pay for our sins. The rosary is one of those things. You know, I've, I've sinned, Father, I go, to, I go to Father Jim here, Father Jim, I've sinned. And in the Roman Catholic mind, penance is a, is a, a sacrament. One of the seven sacraments is the, you know, this idea of, of, of penance. And it involves three things. You have to have contrition, you have to confess to a priest, and you have to perform satisfaction in order for that, that right of penance to uh, be fulfilled. You need to be sorry for your sins. That sorrow is manifested by me going to Father Josh or Father Jim or Father Tim. Um, I'm sorry, I can't say Father Laura, Father Sam, because it wouldn't work. Uh, <laughs> um, that contrition is manifested by going to confessional. And then once I confess, the priest tells me what I need to do. So it's not complete yet. It's not just confessing my sin. I have to perform a, a, an obligatory satisfaction. And that may be counting praying through the rosary so many times. That may be saying so many Hail Marys or Paternosters. Yeah. It may be taking my armor and climbing up the waterfall somewhere in Brazil, uh, right, if you've seen uh, the mission. It's doing something that, you know, taking all of my, I don't know if you've seen the movie, The Mission. Well, a man kills his brother, right? And he takes actually a, a, a sat penance upon himself. No one commands him this, but he takes his old military armor and he puts it on his back like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress and he, he climbs a waterfall to go be a missionary to the, to the natives. Um, and that's his sense. I gotta do this to make it right. Um, that's what the kind of good works are. The idea that you can do anything to scrub out the guilt that it's in your power to do that. That's what Rome is talking about. Well, Protestant, the Protestant Reformation had two main objections. Number one, the first one was Godward-directed objection. The second one was a pastorally-directed objection. Number one, no one on earth is entitled to God's blessing. No one is entitled or can be entitled to God's favor or blessing or goodwill. You can't earn it whatsoever. Well, where do we see that? I don't know if you brought your Bibles with you. Can someone look up Luke 17, 10? You know, in the, in the, in the old Pentecostal church, they used to have these uh, sword drills. Do you remember sword drills in, in Crusaders? Do you? Yeah. <laughs> It's like, it's like Ehud, right? Kind of grabbing for his sword really quickly. That's kind of a, that's kind of a dismal picture, but. If, if you got it first? Oh, I see. You have to hold it above your head. That's kind of like walking in at the procession, at the, at the gospel reading. So uh, Luke seventeen ten. Okay. Right. So at the end of a successful performance 
of a command. Jesus himself says, your response would be, I'm an unworthy servant. It does not create worth in us by, by, by obeying these things. Why? Because we're fundamentally broken and distant from God's glory. So the successful performance of a command only entitles us to say we're unworthy. You know, just as an aside, it's not a harmful thing to say routinely, I'm not worthy of the least of your mercies. It is not an unhelpful thing to routinely say to the Lord in your devotional times and in your prayer times that scriptural prayer, I'm not worthy of the least of your mercies. (laughs) Just own it. Say it. It's freeing. It's liberating because grace can come to only that person. You know, who says that? Where is that from? Where does that come from? I'm I'm not worthy of the least of your mercies. Jesus commends the man who says that. Tax collector and the (laughs) and the and the Pharisee, right? Pharisee thinks he's 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 done a lot of stuff. I tithe. I do this, I do that, I give to the temple. Tax collector won't even lift his eyes to heaven. I'm not worthy the least of your mercies. That man goes away justified. Not the Pharisee. Justification, grace, comes from those who recognize that they have no entitlement (laughs) whatsoever. And it's not a bad thing for us to continually say to the Lord and to ourselves, I'm not worthy the least of your mercies. I found great freedom in saying that. You know, we talk about uh, we talk about um, posture, posture in prayer. I'm going I'm going a bit of a tangent here. In class today, I I was this <laughs> I asked a girl a question, and then my mind's just been in many places today. And uh, she started answering. Then I saw a silica packet on the desk, and I kind of grabbed it and I said, "Silica packet." I said, "You know these things are very useful." As this girl's answer starts to trail off. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize to her, but. Silica packets, apparently, if your like, shoes are damp and stuff, you can stick a silica packet in there. If your luggage, you know, got wet luggage, silica packet. There you go. Keep your silica packets. You can't eat it. You can't smoke it. You can't do any of that stuff. No. Uh, so. You know, the, the, this just as a kind of a, a encouragement to us, saying these things, saying these phrases that are scriptural and right, we employ them. And, uh, you know, throw yourself on the floor cruciform. Put your face in the carpet and say to the Lord, I'm not worthy of the least of your mercies. And uh, let God's grace come to you. So, uh, Rome, and then Romans 3.23. Romans 3.23 Yes, yeah, say that, Tim, read that for us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yes, for all have sinned and fallen. And that's the, that's the, the, the routine uh, pattern of every performance that we do. In everything that we do, this is now Protestant Reformed teaching. In everything we do, we fall short of God's glory. Everything. Um, and, and, you know, the best of our days... I love what J.C. Ryle says. We're going to get to a point today where I just decided to kind of just quote J.C. <laughs> Ryle. On the best of our days, we are far worse than we, um, than we can possibly imagine that we are, um, than we can possibly describe, uh, the very best of our days.
And uh, so that's helpful to, rem to remember. So the first Protestant objection is God were directed. No one's entitled to this. You can't be entitled to God's blessing because of the nature of sin. Um, and I think arguably, arguably, even in the state of paradise, um, the dependence on God, Adam and Eve aren't entitled to God's blessing as the, the relationship between creature and creator. They, they, um, it was still a relationship of, 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 of um, grace in its own way, I think. B, pastorally directed. The moral burden of earning and maintaining salvation is simply too hard to bear. The moral burden of earning your salvation and of maintaining your salvation psychologically, spiritually, is just too hard to bear. Having to feel like you're Atlas, bearing up the weight all the time, lest you slip and have a bad day, and lose your salvation, because if you earn your salvation, logically you have to maintain it. And, you know, let's say you have enough uh, spiritual, moral, psychological stamina to earn your salvation. <laughs> then every day you've got to maintain that in some kind of, you know, moral perfectionism. And, you know, once you slip, then what are you going to do? What happens if, if you slip up, you lose your salvation, and then in that brief minute before you get to the penance and restore yourself to God, you die. Like, it's scary stuff, right? Because, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, extra ecclesium nulla salus, outside of the church, outside of this idea of grace in Rome, there's no salvation. You don't go to purgatory if you lose your salvation and you die, you go to the whatever circle of hell you find yourself in and there's no getting out, right? In front of uh, Dante's uh, door to hell, abandon hope, all you enter here, you never get out. And that's true. Um, so it's just psychologically tormenting, um, this doctrine. And the, the Protestant reformers realize that. It's too hard to bear. Um, okay, number four. This article takes for, um, understands that justification is a means to an end. This is something that we need to think more about. Justification is not an end. Justification is a means to an end. We don't run around saying justified end of story. Justification has a point. Justification has a purpose. Justification is meant to lead us somewhere and not just to stop and, and sing our songs of justification uh what's the purpose well let's read through these scriptures ephesians 1 4 who can who can read ephesians 1 4 for us girls eat popping corn galatians ephesians philippians colossians <laughs> Yeah, the, the form was a little bit less. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Yeah, so there, the end of predestination. See, the end isn't justification. The end is holiness. The end is, 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 uh, is, is moral likeness to God. Holy and blameless before him. Um, Romans eight twenty nine. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to 
Bear, again, the, the point behind, behind the, the, the election, the predestination of God, is that you're conformed. Not just that you're made legally uh, correct before God, legally acceptable. God's justification brings us into a, a, a legal um, relationship and setting with God, whereby God may do something in us, whereby God might effect something in us. Uh, John 17, 17, who has that? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Here is Jesus' high priestly prayer and the stated aim here, sanctification. So we have, we have holiness in Ephesians. We have um, conformity to the Son in Romans. We have sanctification in John, the prayer. What's, who has 1 Thessalonians 4? 3. This is God's will for you. This is his purpose. This is his plan that you are sanctified uh, <laughs> sanctified in the Lord. And finally, 1 Peter 14. We, this, we didn't, it wasn't too long ago when we looked at this together. 1 Peter 14, I'll read that one. Uh, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all of your conduct. The point of uh, God bringing us into right standing with him is that our lives are transformed into holiness. That's the point. And so justification is a means, as an end, a means to an end. And holiness is the primary purpose for which God bestows grace upon us. He gives us grace. He gives us right standing. He gives us um, justification in order that he might work in us holiness. So holy. This is why the Puritans, they're constantly banging the drum of godliness. Everywhere you read, and uh, John Calvin too. John Calvin on the Christian life, he's constantly banging the, the drum of godliness. The point is godliness. Um, and so wherever that's missing in the Christian life, and you have Christians who just delight in their justification, but have no seeming use for the doctrine of godliness and being, being changed, being purged, uh, being refined, then we have reason to doubt where they are in their Christian profession. And I think we'll see this um, coming up shortly here. So... Justification is a means to an end. The end is holiness. Five, the inevitability of sanctification. You'll notice in the, in the, the article, it says that works are the fruits of faith. And then later on, it talks about a, a tree, a tree and its fruits. And so it talks about sanctification in this organic language that is in as much as a, a, a tree naturally produces fruit, inevitably pr produces fruit. So the Christian believer truly in Christ will naturally and inevitably produce fruit. And, you know, the, the, uh, we don't have to read through it, all of it, but you know John 15. It's one of the most splendid chapters in the Bible. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me bears much fruit. And by the way, there again we see that the whole purpose of, of God's election and justification is, 
is conformity to Christ because he says, herein is my Father glorified. This brings my Father great honor, that ye bear much fruit and more fruit, he says, right? And all of the difficulties that we go through in life, all the challenges, they only come for the express purpose of fruit. The Lord wants fruit. So when he sees that we're bearing fruit, what does he do? He cuts and he hacks and he makes us suffer so that we'll bear more fruit. <laughs> it's, the Bible says the fruit will come. It's not a question of us trying to work it out, even though there's, there is striving. Fruit will come to the genuine believer, and that's, that brings us great, uh, great confidence. I look what, look what uh, J.C. Ryle says here. Paul was a man of God indeed, a holy man, a growing, thriving Christian. And what was the secret of it all? He was one to whom Christ was all in all. He was ever looking unto Jesus. That is, Paul understood that it's only the vine and nothing else that can bring the, the, uh, the fruit into, into our lives. By the way, if you've not read J.C. Ryle's Holiness, um, it's, it's very important that you do so. It is a wonderful, life-changing book. And I, I see it every Sunday. It's in, our, <laughs> it's in our library card. And every Sunday, it's still there. It's kind of sitting there. No one takes it out. But you, you, it's a very important book. And it, it should not be in our library card. It should always be kind of going out and out and out. Um, and I find myself constantly going back to, to Ryle's holiness. So, sanctification for the believer is inevitable, this, art, this article says. That's reason for hope. It's reason for hope in moments of our sense of failure, in our sense of, of uh, you know, with crying out with Paul, uh, woe is me, uh, our sense of our own sin, and, and we have confidence in Jesus that fruit will be inevitable for us um, in, in times of despair. Number six, um, not only is the fruit in the Christian life inevitable because of where it comes from, the article tonight says that the, the fruit that we experience in our life is pleasing to God. Now look at these two verses. Um, Hebrews, um, with such sacrifices, God is well pleased, the Bible says. And then my favorite verse in all the Bible, uh, children, obey your parents in the Lord in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. I say this to the kids all the time. Uh, you know, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is, this is pleasing to the Lord. They say parents don't exasperate. Yes, exactly, yeah. Well, I don't say it exasperatingly. Uh, but yes, the, that is, we can do what we do now, the, the fruit before Christ. So the article says this, before Christ, nothing's pleasing to God. After we're justified, our, our good works have a pleasing aroma to God. And again, I'll just lean on Ryle here. We'll read that together. The holiest actions of the holiest saints that ever lived are all more or less full of defects and imperfections. For all this, just as a parent is pleased with the efforts of his little child to please him, Though it be only a picking a daisy, by picking a daisy or walking across a room, so is our Father in heaven pleased with the poor performances of his believing children. 
Let them never forget this, for this is a very comfortable doctrine. He regards them as members of his own dear son, and for his sake, wherever there is a single eye, he is well pleased. Those churchmen who would dispute this would do well to study the 12th article of the Church of England. <laughs> you know, and there's great comfort in that, isn't there? We, we tend... Um, we tend to, we, we can often, many of us, beat ourselves up. And uh, we have to understand, in as much as we need to confess our sins and be transparent with God with, our, with respect to our sins and say to the Lord, I'm not worthy of the least of your mercies, we also have to embrace this doctrine and believe <laughs> that even when we stumble trying to serve the Lord, he's pleased with us. He's our Father, and not because of us, but because it's the righteousness of Christ clothes us. And, uh, you know, if one morning we get up to pray, and we just, it's hard, and we stumble, and we just, it just doesn't come out right, and we're reading the Word, and just it's, we're just dull, you know, the Lord sees these, these stumbling attempts of His child in Christ, and He's pleased with it. He's pleased. Um, and there's something very important about listening to this doctrine and believing it and rejoicing in the pleasure of God. It's, there's nothing like that when you sense God's pleasure. I mean, I, I don't want to get all mystical here, but you need to experience God's pleasure in you or else you're not experiencing adoption. Embracing the truth, not just intellectually, but experiencing it in your at a heart level, God's pleased in Christ with you. Um, there's a joy in that. The joy in the Lord comes from that sense of His pleasure. You know, it's like like um, Eric Little. Eric Little. <laughs> when I run, I feel His pleasure, and we were made to feel the pleasure of God in us. So, you know, behold the goodness and the severity of God. Right? Behold the goodness and the severity of God. We have to hold these two things in tension. The severity of his judgment, as this, this article says, but also the, the beauty and the delight of his pleasure in us. And, you know, like a pendulum, we can go either way. And if we're, if we're constantly hammering away the severity of God and the demands of God and the fearfulness of God, which we ought to speak about, but we're not talking about God's pleasure in us in Christ. He delights in us. He, he sings over us with delight. Then we're just, we're not where we ought to be. So we need to bring these two things together. Um, um, but we do need to aim. Uh, so we can't, we can't, you'll notice that the article, what, what Ryle here says at least, is that where there's a single eye, He's well pleased. Where his child is saying, I want to serve you. I want to labor for you. I want to do these things. And I aim to do these things. God is well pleased. The person who just says, I'm justified, and then kicks up his feet and sits on his laurels, has no reason to expect in God's pleasure uh, in that way. And God is by no means pleased with those who have no single eye and are looking anywhere but to God then we can't expect God's pleasure. Number seven. The, here, now, here's, this is tricky. 
But you'll notice, you, you notice if looking back at the, just look back at the art, at the article that we're looking at tonight. Um, the end. So so um, good works do necessarily spring out of a true and lively faith. They come organically. In so much that by them a lively faith may what? May as be as evidently known as a tree discerned by the fruit. Now we have to be careful here. Um, we have to be careful here because um, election is caught up into the mystery of God's eternal counsels. And we weren't back there. And uh, to kind of um, walk around like duck, duck, goose, elect, elect, not elect, <laughs> going around the circle uh, is really unhelpful. But we have to face the scriptural teaching. So will someone read 1 Thessalonians 1, 3 to 4 for me? Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. <laughs> okay, so what's Paul talking about in the first part of that verse? He's talking about their... Works. He's noticing their works, their love, their labor, their faithfulness. And then he says, we know, right in response to that, we know that you are chosen of God. That is to say, we know that you are the elect of God. So there you see the good works are signs of the, of the election. Matthew seven sixteen. we don't, many of you will know this off by heart. Um, but Tim, you got it there? Yeah. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So um, fruit, the kind of fruit that's produced, whether it's a grape or whether it's a thistle, will tell you what kind of person uh, it is, Jesus says. So we have to um, simply take this at face value that uh, fruit advertises who the person belongs to. And Jesus seems to give us the permission that if a life is consistently bearing thorns and thistles and no good fruit, that we have the right to question the authenticity of that person's relationship to God and that person ought to fear and tremble. So if you have no delight in drawing near to God, if it never crosses your mind to pray, to read the word, to seek his face. I mean, these are just the elementary works. This is not, I'm not talking now about, about kind of going to the soup kitchen. You just want to be near God. If a person does not want to be near God, what reason do you have to believe that you belong to him? That's the, that's the, the thing here. What does your life produce? Does it produce the works of faith? Does it produce the works of repentance? Does it produce an aspiration to be like Jesus? Do you want it? And do you do the things that will bring you closer to Jesus and his likeness? Um, now, we can't take this. We can't take this. We ought never take this and play that duck-duck-goose game in church and apply labels to people. It's just, I think, here a, a, a warning that Scripture gives us. And that we can, we have reason to be confident, at the very least on a surface level, 
that we can know those who belong. I can be confident that Josh loves the Lord and is, is a, and I, I don't need to kind of constantly be doubting it, right? There's a, there's a witness of the Spirit, I suppose, if I can use that phrase, that someone belongs to God. <laughs> you know, your hearts are kind of delight in fellowship with the Lord. And um, the fruit, it's, it's just the fruit advertises itself. Fruit advertises itself. Um, and I'll leave that, I'll, I'll leave that with that. Well, I was feeling very encouraged. You could keep going. Right. Josh's fruit, as an example. Hashtag. (laughs) Okay, number eight. Hashtag humility. So um, we said there's the inevitability of sanctification. It's going to happen. It's organically present by Jesus. We're part of him. It's going to come. We, we need not be discouraged. Well, what does that mean with respect to what we do? Can I just read through these with you? Here's where I got to the point where I just said, let's let John Charles take over. There is no promise. There are no promises in the Lord. Sorry? <laughs> subject, yeah, subject, verb, agreement. There, there be no promises in the Lord Jesus Christ's epistles. Listen, this is, this is wonderful. There are no promises in the Lord Jesus Christ's epistles to the seven churches except to those who overcome. Where there is grace, there will be conflict. Isn't that wonderful? There are no promises except to those who overcome. Where there's grace, there will be conflict. So the experience of conflict is evidence of grace. That's a, that's a hopeful word to those of us who find it hard to live the Christian life. If you're, if you're finding it hard, it's a sign of God's grace in you. The, the, the battle, the labor to get out of bed, the labor to witness to your neighbors, the, this, the, t- the timidity that we experience and the, the struggle uh, at various points, the, the, the battle against the old man, Right? If you're just kind of, if everything's good and you never had to fight the old Adam or the old Eve, it's always the old Adam. Um, but if, if, we, if you're never experiencing that, then it, there's no grace is what the message is. But where you find it, you're just, oh man, I can't believe I still have to wrestle with this. It's evidence of grace. Um, where there's grace, there will be conflict. He goes on to say, there's a vast quantity of religion current in the world which is not true, genuine Christianity. It satisfies sleepy consciences, but it's not good money. Of spiritual strife and exertion and conflict and self-denial and watching and warring, it knows literally nothing at all. True Christianity is a fight. Um... And I hardly need to amplify on that. Um, I won't amplify on that. J.C. Ryle again, if we say with Paul, O wretched man that I am, let us also be able to say with him, I press toward the mark. It's not enough to kind of complain about your sins. You have to do that. If you don't do that, you're a liar and you deceive yourselves. Every day, right? And let me just say again, 
The Lord's Prayer is the pattern for daily prayer. Forgive us this day our sins. You cannot and must not go through a day without confessing your sins to the Lord because it's the Lord's pattern. Do this when you pray. Give us this day our daily bread and then the forgive us our trespasses this day as we forgive those who trespass against us. You, you must practice that. And if, if nothing else, if nothing else, let me just encourage you before you close your eyes in bed, just say to the Lord, forgive, forgive my sins which are many through the blood of Jesus. Just confess it simply to the Lord um, and, and practice the Lord's um, pattern for prayer. So it's not enough to say that. You also have to press towards the mark. The Lord's given us a mark. What's the mark? Christ. Christ is the mark. Holiness is the mark. Um, we press. J.C. Riley and I sometimes fear if Christ were on earth now, there are not a few who would think his preaching legal. You know, I was, uh, th this uh, past Sunday, I've, I, I, I've, I've, you know, um, I was talking with Josh last night or whatever, not last night. Um, you know, the, the common reading of, of our passage in Ephesians last Sunday is, is um, the, the Greek, be angry, don't sin. The common reading is, as, as the translation actually that we read on Sunday, in your anger, don't sin. It's okay to be angry as long as you don't act on it. We take it almost as gospel because we've been living in this therapy culture for so long in the West that we've been coddled into thinking our anger is okay. It's okay to be angry. Just go home and stomp your feet and throw some pillows and just work it out. It's okay to be angry just as long as you don't act on it. That's become as gospel to us. But the Lord tells us very differently. He doesn't say go home and, and, and just continue to hate your enemies just as long as you don't punch them. What does he say to do with your enemies? Pray for them. Bless them. Don't curse them. You can curse them in your heart as long as you don't curse them out loud. That's not the message. You're not allowed to curse your enemies. You're not allowed to hate them like that. You must forgive them. It's hard, but that's the word of Christ to us. And, and when we start to realize that the word of God confronts us in this way, and it's so alien to the culture and the, the counsel of the world, we realize, my goodness, and we have to wrest ourselves from the counsel of the world and hem ourselves in with the counsel of the word of God and let it change us. Um, and you start to 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 um, to say things like that, and people say, "Oh, you're just being you're just being legalistic." <laughs> the word can't say that. It does say that. In fact, it says more than that. If you don't forgive your neighbor, God will not forgive you. There is no forgiveness to the embittered person. There is no forgiveness to the person who does not forgive others. <laughs> um, and so we, we need to kind of, we, we need to embrace the, the challenges of Scripture here, as, as Ryle encourages us to. He's a master of words, talking about the, the battle of the Christian life. The epistle to the Ephesians contains six chapters and not four. What does he mean there? What's in chapter six? It's the armor, isn't 
It's the armor. It's the fight. You get up in the morning and you realize today, as I walk out of my house, today as I get out of bed, I'm entering the arena of diabolical, <coughs> demonic, devilish conflict. Today, as I get out of my bed, I'm entering into the field of demons and high things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. That's the reality. And um, uh, we, we need to, to live in that. So Ephesians contains six chapters, not four. And then finally, well, someone just read this for me because I've, re- I've, I've said it in my mind so many times. I'd love to hear someone else say it. It's a doozy. A single day in hell will be worse than a whole life spent in carrying the cross. Yeah. Carrying the cross or life, fighting for holiness and godliness is nothing. It's nothing compared, um, compared to what the ungodly must endure for one day. Um, so let's, let's keep these things in mind. Now, finally, finally, can I say, let's say a word about the harmony of Paul and James. So, um, James famously by many people has been pitted against Paul Paul uh, the whole of Romans or at least the whole first part of Romans right is, is, is written to ensure that the church understands that the law has no place in justifying the sinner has nothing to say the law has nothing to say about sinners being justified before God. And Paul labors that point, uh, and in Galatians as well. James says that, um, seemingly says that we are justified by our works, that there is a place for works and justification. I found few uh, explanations so helpful in this um, tension between Paul and James than in Wigget. Uh, W.H. Griffith Thomas, uh, the great systematic Anglican theologian. He says this, St. Paul teaches that works must spring from faith. St. James teaches that faith must be proved by works. St. Paul is thus dealing with the error of legalism. St. James with the error of antinomianism. St. Paul is warning against merit St. James against a mere intellectual orthodoxy. St. Paul and St. James are not two soldiers of different armies fighting each other, but two of the same army fighting back to back against enemies coming from different directions. (laughs) Isn't that wonderful? That just kind of solves it all, you know, and puts it all, except for when I hear back to back, I think of Wolverine and, and, uh, yeah. But yes, it's a wonderful uh, back-to-back. It's a wonderful uh, way to understand how these two, they're not saying different things. They're just, they're, they're, they're opposing enemies to, to a common understanding. And then finally tonight, John Calvin, his famous quote, which many of you understand, it is faith alone which justifies, and yet that faith which justifies is not alone. Because I missed something. Did I miss something? I did. Can we go back on page two? We should read this. So the last point, um, yeah. So under under, we looked at those verses as as holiness as a means to an end. 
Um, so J.C. Ryle again, tell me not of your justification, unless you also have some marks of sanctification. Boast not of Christ's work for you, unless you can show us the Spirit's work in you. Think not that Christ and the Spirit can be divided. So if you have some reason to boast of your justification, then give me some evidence that the Spirit is now at work in you. 1 Corinthians 1.30, Christ Jesus became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That is, Christ comes to us with all of his benefits. And you can't divide, because you can't divide Christ, you can't divide the benefit. Now, this quote at the bottom here, this is taken from, from my, uh, my doctor father, my doctoral supervisor, Victor Shepard. He's a, a wonderful Cal, Calvin scholar. And uh, this is from his book, The Nature and Function of Faith in John Calvin. And uh, Shepard says this, Jesus Christ cannot be divided. No benefit of his can be separated from any other, nor can his benefits be separated from his person. He who is the believer's effectual priest must be the believer's effectual king. He who is the believer's righteousness is the believer's sanctification. Calvin never tires of referring to 1 Corinthians 1.30, he whom the Christian puts on is put on in the totality of his reality. Throughout the commentaries, Calvin iterates that the sum of the gospel consists in the forgiveness of sins, free reconciliation, and repentance. That is the process of, of being refined from our sins, which is newness of life. And so, if ever we find in our experience that we are um, beginning to, in any way, lean or trust in our own steam in the fight, we're called to this fight, we're called to this battle, we're called to the strife, we're called to combat. If ever we find in our hearts that we're beginning to think that it's us, Calvin and Shepherd and Paul say that we have to remind ourselves constantly that even as justification comes to us as a benefit of Christ, so sanctification comes to us as a benefit of Christ alone. And it's all his, even though that we paradoxically are uh, responsible as free agents in this, uh, in this pursuit of godliness. It's all Christ's benefit. Well, let me end with a final word that you should read The Holiness by J.C. Ryle. And uh, if, uh, if you do read it, I know that you will thank me for it. Any questions about, about the lesson tonight? We've gone on for about an hour. Any thoughts or, or comments? I just found it very, very comforting. Mm. Yes, yeah. To take away the, uh, the, the conflict in the mind. Yes, yeah. Just to cut through and make it yeah. the side or the side. Yes, it, it, uh, it is a comforting... It's, it's, when, when we are experiencing comfort in the command to obey God and in the pursuit of sanctification, then we know we're in the right place. When it's comforting to us, Right? Your commands, says the psalmist, are sweeter than honey. When that's our experience, when, it's, when we find when the Lord commands us and it's sweet to us 
And it's a delight to us because we know that it's his grace working through us. And we know that even in our foibles, in our peccadillos, and in our more grievous sins, and and, and incompleteness, still in Christ it's pleasing to God. Then we know that we're in the right place. When we find that in obeying the commands, now, the commands of the Bible are many. And you'll find that the general principles of the, of the, uh, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, are amplified in the New Testament. They expand. They don't contradict. They expand. And they, don't, uh, they, they take what's there and then they say, now let me show you what's here in all of its fullness. Um, when we find that obeying the commands becomes onerous and we become, we become vexed, and we become disgruntled towards God, then it, we're, we're, we're not understanding grace in the right way. But when we can say with a psalmist, it's a delight to me. Even, I mean, let's, notwithstanding the battle, right? Conflict, we get that. We get that. But conflict notwithstanding, and fighting the old man notwithstanding, when, when in our hearts we say it's sweet to obey you, then we know that we we're, we're, we're walking in grace in the way that we ought to be. It's sweeter than honey. Now, if the Old Testament psalmist could say to the Lord, your, your commandments are my delight, how much more the New Testament believer, when the Lord gives us many, many, many commands and imperatives to obey him, from which we are not... Uh, at liberty, we are not at liberty to reject in any cert- in any way whatsoever. Um, grace makes these things sweet to us. Then we know that we're approaching these things rightly. When we become cantankerous towards them, th- then we're not coming at them from the right direction. I think so. Yes, that's good. It's good to be comforted by the doctrine of of good works. That's a right, that's a, a good sign.